Well, if you're here and you've got your copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 today. I'm going to open us with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your Word which you've given us. Father, we thank you that through your Word we can know more about who you are. Lord, I thank you for the things that you will show us today about your character. Lord, I pray that as we learn more about you, I pray that it would drive us to be more like you. Lord, I pray that you would uh, indeed forgive us of our sins. And I pray that you would help us to be like your son Christ. Lord, we pray that today you would feed your people. And Lord, I pray that you would use me to do it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, hopefully you're over in Luke chapter 15. And uh, this is going to be the last sermon uh, in our series uh, that we've entitled Christian. And so we've been talking for about six, seven weeks now about what it means to be a Christian. And the bottom line, uh, to spoil the whole series for you, if this is your first Sunday, is that we don't know what it means to be a Christian because the word Christian isn't defined anywhere in the Bible. That the followers of Christ never referred to themselves as Christians, and Jesus never referred to any of his followers as Christians. The word Christian was a title given by outsiders to describe those people who were following Christ. And we said that if you really want to know what followers of Christ were called, they were called disciples. That's what Jesus called his followers. That's what his followers called themselves. And I feel like one of the reasons that we use the word Christian in culture these days is because it's not defined and it can mean anything that you want it to be. That means that when we go to war, you can have Christians on both sides of the war. That means when we have uh, presidential elections, you can have presidents who are for or against various things and they can be on opposing sides of any issue. But if we went back to Jesus and we were disciples and we fit the description of disciples, boy, it's scary, isn't it? Because he describes in very good detail what his followers look like. And so my prayer for us all along has been that we would get back to a biblical definition of what a Christ follower looks like. And so just to kind of set the table for you uh, of where we're going with things, this is our last sermon uh, about being a, about being a disciple, or excuse me, this is our last sermon in a series that we're calling Christian, which is about being a disciple. And we've talked about love being that characteristic that sets us apart because Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love. And so all of these Christian sermons have been about love. This is the last one. Next week's Palm Sunday. Next week is Easter. And then after that, we're going to go into a series about what does it mean to be a disciple, not just love. But there's tons of other things that he said, if you want to be my disciple, this, that, or the other. And we're going to dive into a bunch of those things. And so for all of you out there who don't like the mushy, gushy sermons, this is the last one. Amen? All right. Good deal. So... We jump in and we're in Luke chapter 15 and we've already talked about that Jesus said at the end of his life that they'll know you're my followers. They'll know you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And he tells them, I want you to love each other like I have loved you. And so now we're in Luke chapter 15 and Luke chapter 15 verse one starts out like this. It says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. And so get this, Jesus is such a caliber of guy. That tax collectors and sinners flock to him to hear what he has to say, right? And so everything that he says, he, he says it in such a way that tax collectors and sinners are eager to hear what he's saying. So Jesus is able to draw a crowd, even though Jesus is always preaching the truth. I want you to get that. He's not fluffing any messages up so that he can draw a crowd. He's 
always preaching the truth, no matter who's around. And so now a crowd has gathered. And just to remind you that tax collectors were such bad sinners that it offended the sinners to be to be lumped in the same group with them. And so Matthew here puts them into two different groups. The sinners didn't like the tax collectors because they thought they were way worse than they were. So anyways, you have tax collectors and sinners. They've all come near to listen to Jesus. And then in verse 2 it says, Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so you have Jesus is preaching here. He's got all of the sinners and the tax gatherers around him. And then kind of back... Off in the distance, the scribes and the Pharisees are looking at it, and they are not happy that Jesus has anything to do with, with the sinners and the tax collectors. As if this group realizes that they're not good enough to be around Jesus, but they're glad that Jesus is going to have them. And this group thinks that that group doesn't have what it takes to be near Jesus. And so the reality is that neither group is in good shape with Jesus, okay? The, the sinners and the tax collectors need to repent and come to Christ and the Pharisees and the scribes need to stop being so self-righteous and come to Jesus. And so these two groups of people that are both looking at Jesus, I want you to see that they don't get along and they wouldn't agree about anything. You with me? So we got two different classes of people, if you would. So Jesus, knowing this, that the Pharisees and the scribes and the sinners and the tax collectors don't have anything in common, he gets them together to solve this problem. The problem is, is that they're not going to get along. And so he tells them a parable. And he goes about this like any of you good parents go about solving a problem with your children. Sometimes your children ask you a question. And if you just answer the question, they're not going to be satisfied with that answer, right? Because it's a very simple answer that you're going to give them. But you have to go about it in such a way so that they can keep track of everything you're doing. You with me? So sometimes you tell them a story. Sometimes you illustrate it to make a simple point. Give me a little head nod. All right. I know some of you guys are disappointed. Jesse Yates is in the bulletin again. I know some of you are disappointed that I'm not her, but uh, you're going to have to bear with me. So he starts the story and he says, all right, riddle me this, guys. How many of you have ever lost something? And at this point, sinners and tax collectors would have lost things and scribes and Pharisees would have lost things also. And so Jesus says this, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And so every, all of these people would have had sheep. All of these people would have probably lost a sheep here or there. And everybody knows that when you lose something, you go find it. He tells him another story. He says, Hey, what woman, if she has 10 coins, doesn't go and turn on the lights and look for the other coin. And at this point, everybody's kind of hesitantly going like this. Like when you guys agree with me in a sermon, none of you are like, yes, a hundred, a wholeheartedly. You're kind of skeptical because you're not sure where we're going. But here, you've got sinners and tax collectors, you've got scribes and Pharisees, and they've all lost something. And they've all had to search for something that was gone. And then he says in verse 5, and so when you find your sheep, you lay it on your shoulders rejoicing. So all of you have lost something, all of you have found something, and all of you know the joy that takes place when you find that thing you're looking for. And then he says in verse 6, And when he comes home, he calls his neighbors, his friends, together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so he says, listen, you've all lost something, you've all found something, and you all know the joy that takes place when you find it. And he says, sinners are the same way. 
when they are, they are lost and when they get found, there is excitement in heaven because that what was lost is now found. And he says, sinners and tax collectors are no different than the sheep or the coin. And everybody's kind of, they're, they're agreeing, but it's hesitant. And so he says, well, let me tell you another story. Let me tell you a little, another story that'll hit a little closer to home. And then he starts in verse 11. And he says, let me tell you about a man who had two sons. And so all of the sinners and tax collectors, if they're male, have been sons. All of these scribes and Pharisees who are male, all of them have been sons. And so when you tell a story about sons, everybody's on a level playing field because all of these people had been sons before. And all of these people knew the Jewish culture. And so then he says in verse 12, the younger of them, the younger son said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And so I'm going to put this more in layman's terms so it makes perfect sense to you. All of you that have had two or more children, you know something about children. Generally speaking, the first child is the behavior and the second child is the misbehavior, right? All of you that have brothers, anybody, older brother, younger brother, you with me? Sometimes it's flip-flopped around. The third child is a shot in the dark. You have no idea what he's going to end up being. He can be the best of both personalities or he can be the worst of both personalities. And he can be both of those at the same time sometimes. And so anyways, so you know if you're here and you're male something about sibling relationships, right? And you know that when your brother does something offensive to your family, it gets under your skin and makes you angry. Everybody with me? You've all been there. And so he's talking about family relationships, which all of you know about. And so the younger one says to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So the father divides his wealth between them. And so this is like what the younger brother says. Father, I'm annoyed with how you're running things. I don't want to be here, be part of the family business anymore. I wish that you were dead and you would just go ahead and give me all that belongs to me. That's what he says. To which everybody who's been an older brother or a younger brother and looking at their siblings would say, wow, that kid is way out of line. He says, dad, you've worked your whole life. You've earned all of these things and I want them now. I don't want to wait for you to die. Let, let's just pretend you're dead. You give me everything that's coming to me and I'll go on my way. And if you're here now, you probably think, boy. That's really sitting in a place that I don't like because that is super messed up what this kid is doing. And so just so you know kind of how the culture went, the firstborn child usually got two-thirds. The second child usually got a third. So it wasn't a 50-50 type deal. And so it goes on to say in verse 13. And so, well, in the end of verse 12, it says, so the father just goes ahead and divides everything up. Just want you to know, just for the record, this is a story. This is a parable that Jesus is making up. This is not a true story, but he's telling this story to get a true point across. And so now you go down to verse 13 and it says, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And so what happened is that the father says, okay, I will uh, oblige with your request. And so he liquidates what he needs to liquidate. He sells what he needs to sell. He just does all of the decisions he needs to do to give the younger son everything he's got coming to him. And so the son sticks around for a few days, probably sells what was given to him. And now he's got all of his money and he's putting it on his wagon. And this town isn't big enough for the two of us. So now this boy is going to hit the road. And right now, if you're listening to this story and you're a son, you're like, man... That brother has got some nerve to treat dad like this. 
And right now you're thinking, yeah, I'm glad that clown is leaving town because we don't need him around here anyways, right? It's kind of the thought. If he's going to act like that, let him leave, right? Now you keep going on. And so he leaves and he goes to a distant country and there he squandered his estate with loose living. And so this guy is is living and he's squandering all of his money with loose living. He could also, a translation of this is lavish living. And so he's loose and he's lavish and he's spending everything he has. Living it up on dad's money. Money that he didn't work for. He asked from dad and now he's wasted it. Listen to this. He didn't lose the money. He's wasting the money that he didn't work for. And so now if you're the scribes and Pharisees, sinners and tax collectors, you're like, man, not only is this kid treating his father poorly like he's dead, not only is he being rude and asking for everything, not only has he left home, but he's not even investing his dad's money back in the business to make things better. He's taken his money and he's gone and he's wasting everything that dad worked for on the road in Edenton, one town over, right? He's gone over there and he's living like the rest of them. He has loosened up. Just kidding. So now, it says in verse 14, Now when he had spent everything, this is everything that he didn't work for, everything that he got from his father's hard work, his father worked his whole life for, now the kid has spent everything. A severe famine occurred in that country. And so now if you're listening to the story, you're thinking, <laughs> serves that kid right. Now he's spent everything, he's got nothing, now there's no food in the country. That kid's getting exactly what he deserves. And then it says, he began to be impoverished. And so now this kid is hungry, verse 14. So, now he's broke, he's been living a lavish life. Any of you that have that uh, read your Bible, read Proverbs, know that when someone comes into money quickly, they gain a lot of friends, and usually when the money runs out, the friends are gone too. Right? You take any Hollywood actor, if they lose all of their money, stop throwing big parties, their friend list deteriorates probably. So now, the kid's poor, he's hungry, he's out of everything, and in verse 15, he needs a job. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And so now, if you're in a Jewish culture... Not only are you happy for that kid who's wasted all of his dad's money, now the kid's hungry and he needs a job. And if he's going to get a job, he doesn't get some rich pretty boy job. He's got to be in the fields feeding swine, which Jewish people were not supposed to do. You're not supposed to be around pigs because they're unclean. And so now all the scribes, Pharisees, sinners, and tax collectors are even more. Yes, that kid's getting everything he deserves. And now, verse 16... And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. And so again, everybody that's listening to Jesus tell this story is on board with what Jesus is saying now. And so this is one of Jesus' best speeches as far as they're concerned. Because finally, in Jesus' economy, somebody's getting what they deserve and it's what we would give them. Now the kid's hungry and he's He's feeding swine, and the kid's so hungry and out of it, the Lord is punishing him, and now he wants to eat the food that the pigs are eating. Gross, but good riddance on that little boy. We're better off without him, right? If that's your brother, big brother or little brother, you're thinking the same thing. Unless you're more godly than me and you're probably thinking better things. But, verse 17... 
But when he came to his senses, and so the boy is going to sense up, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. And so the kid has an epiphany and he realizes, wait a minute, the slaves that my father has are way better off than I am. And so he, he sees where he is. He's at the bottom and he recognizes it. He says in verse 18, I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so now, if you're there and you're a scribe or a Pharisee or a sinner and a tax collector, what you're thinking now is probably, wow, this crazy kid's about to go back to his dad and he's going to have to tell his dad that he wasted all of his hard-earned money and his dad is going to take him behind the woodshed and it is fixing to get real good in this Jesus story. I cannot wait to go home and eat dinner and tell my kids what Jesus had to say. If you waste all of your dad's things and you come home to see dad, dad's going to do what's next, Jesus. What's the dad going to do when the boy gets home? And so he got up. This is the boy. The boy gets up. Verse 20. He came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt. And if you're a scribe and a Pharisee, you're filling in the blank already. You ever, you're the type of person that tries to finish someone's sentences. And so felt, felt what Jesus, what did he feel? Yeah, he's, I can think of a whole lot of words that if I was that dad, I'd be feeling right now. I can think of a whole lot of things. And, and anger would probably be at the top of the clean list. And so, now, what's the dad? How's the dad feel? What's it like, Jesus? The dad saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, if you would have stopped the story a sentence earlier, everybody would have been happy. Everybody would have been happy to see the boy get exactly what he deserved. But... The father sees him. He feels compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And just something you need to know about their culture, men didn't run in this culture. It's just something they didn't do. But this man runs and he embraces publicly his son who smells like pigs and all the nasty stuff that comes along with pigs. And this dad runs to meet him. And he doesn't go to give him a hug and be like, whoa, boy, you need to wash up before you come in the house. But he openly embraces the son and he kisses him. Then the son is ready to go into his rehearsed speech, right? And so he starts and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And just like the thief on the cross who told Jesus or who told the other thief, this guy or he said, we deserve to be killed. We deserve to be on our crosses, but that man's done nothing. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 you're a good guy. You're fine. You guys aren't that bad. He doesn't say that. You kind of get no answer from Jesus. And so Jesus is like, yeah, you, you guys pretty much do. You've been rotten and you deserve the death that you're getting. And now the son, he says, Father, I've sinned. Verse 21, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And you don't get any rebuttal from the father. The father doesn't say, no, we love you. You're a great boy. You haven't done anything wrong. It's all okay. The father doesn't say anything like that. The father recognizes that everything the boy is saying is correct. But he doesn't make the boy feel bad about it. He doesn't rub it in his face all the time. The father listens to it 
and says, But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. So restore this boy to our family. What he said is right, but he's in the family now. He's come back. And bring, verse 23, bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate it. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. And so dad throws a big party. Because the son has come back and he's in the family again. And so now, in verse 25, you've got, remember at the beginning of the story... Over and you don't have to turn there, but back in verse 11, it says that a man had two sons. And so you know about the first son, but now we're going to pick up on son two. Verse 25 says, now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he, the servant said to him, your brother has come. And the son would be like, wait a minute. You mean, you mean little brother came back and I hear music? I just saw the fatted calf get carried off in a cart. If the little son is here, if little brother's here, he should be the one on the cart getting hauled back to the house. He's the one we should have slaughtered and we should be doing something with him right now. That scoundrel. But anyways, the father throws a party. And so, the older son's in the field. He came, approached the house. He heard music dancing. He summons one of the servants, began inquiring, what could these things be? Verse 27, and he said to him, your father has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, but he, the oldest son, became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. And so now you have a son who doesn't feel worthy of going back to the father. Right? You've got sinners and tax collectors. You've got a son who doesn't feel worthy to be at home with Jesus or with the father. Then you have an older son who's just like the Pharisees and the scribes. And he doesn't feel like they're worthy to be with Jesus. And so in turn, you have two people that the father wants to be with them. This one doesn't feel like everybody else is worthy, which makes them not worthy. And that group thinks that they're not worthy, but they are welcome. You get where this is going? And so there's a party that neither one of the the father's throwing a party for both sons and both sons don't want to be there. This is what's going on. But the oldest son, verse 28, became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. And so the father is begging the oldest son to come in and be with your little brother. He was lost. Now he's found. He was dead to us and now he's alive. And the older brother says, I wish he was still dead. He's still dead to me. Now, verse 29, but he answered and said to his father. So the oldest son is going to speak to the father. And he said to his father, look. For so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. And so he says, Dad, I've been here the whole time, and I've done everything that you told me to do, and you haven't even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. Sounds pretty legitimate, right? If you're the older son or you're the younger son who's always done what you're supposed to do, you can see that there's a little bit of tension here, that there's some disappointment on his part. 
And then you get into verse 30. But when this son of yours came, so at this point, the older brother isn't even saying my brother. He's saying, this son of yours. You ever been so mad at your kids that you told your spouse that their kids were doing something wrong? Ever been there? I'm always coming in the house saying, you're not going to believe what your kids have done now. Uh, so anyways, but when this son of yours, this is the older brother speaking, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth, dad, I wasn't going to tell you this, but he devoured all of your wealth with prostitutes. I didn't want you and mom to know everybody's talking about it on Facebook. You're not on Facebook. And so now dad, you should be angry at this clown too, because all of your money that you worked hard for went for your brother to enjoy himself with prostitutes. And you killed the fattened calf for him. See the anger here? See the anger on the part of one son, angry at the other son for wasting all of dad's things. And then dad seemingly rolls out the red carpet for him. And you go, what, what gives? I don't, I don't get this. And he said to him, this is the dad speaking to the oldest son. And he said to him, verse 31, son, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. So he says, son, he's wasted everything that I gave him. I'm not going to redivide everything up again. You're here and you've been working with me. And everything that you're doing is yours. Everything that you see, son, belongs to you. That's what you're working for. But we had, verse 32, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And so the picture here that you're getting is that in God's eyes, it's not about performance. You getting me? It's not about performance. It's about proximity. And so the younger brother was gone. He was gone away from the family. He was gone away from the Lord. And now he's come back and he's in the family again. And that's why we're celebrating. We're not celebrating all of the wicked things that he did. But now he's done with all of that and he's back with us. And that's why we're celebrating. And so the whole reason that I add one more week onto a sermon series like this is because we live in Windsor, North Carolina, in case any of you didn't know that. Okay? We don't have a lot of influx of people in and out of Windsor, North Carolina, right? Most of the crowd that comes in and out of Windsor stays at Gray's Landing a night or two, and then they leave. The people that we're going to reach as a church are prodigal children. And we need to not be scribes and Pharisees as we try to reach them. Because truth be told, all of you, including myself... We're prodigals at one time. We were out in the world. We were doing our own thing. We were happy doing our own thing. And then Christ came into our life somehow. Somebody loved us enough to tell us about Christ. And Christ changed us. And when we got saved, when we put our faith in Christ, when our sins were forgiven, hopefully people didn't look down their noses at us. But they celebrated that we weren't in the family before and now we are in the family. And the reason I take the time to share this with you is because the people that, that we want to reach and the people that we're going to reach need somebody to celebrate when they come into the kingdom. They need somebody to throw a party for them. They need somebody in their corner 
cheering for them and rooting for them now that they've come from a distant land and they've come back to the Father. They realize they've sinned against heaven and in His sight and they realize that they're not all of the things that they thought they were. Right? When they realize that, it's our job as followers of Christ to love them exactly like Christ would love them. And what I've just explained to you is not easy to do sometimes. Because once you get a reputation, it sticks. But the cool thing about following Christ is that when you make a decision to follow Christ, when your sins are forgiving, He says the old man passes away and everything becomes new. And so my prodigal life, my distant land that none of you know about, I'm not that guy anymore. Your prodigal life, your distant life, you're not that person anymore. You've been saved. You've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And behold, all things have become new. And we treat you like that. And so we have got to be the type of people who love sinners and tax collectors. Not that remain sinners and tax collectors, but that come to Christ that we openly embrace them and give them the same chance that God's giving them. Amen? That was a little disheartening. (laughs) And so, I want you to see that the father never applauds the prodigal son for going away. And when the prodigal son comes back, you don't see the father being angry at the prodigal son. You with me? Why isn't the father angry at the prodigal son? It's a valid question to ask. The son was lost, now he's found. The reason the father's not angry at the prodigal son who's gone, who was lost, is because we don't get angry at things that are lost. When was the last time you lost your phone and you got angry at your phone? When was the last time you walked out of the house, you didn't have your keys, and you got angry at your keys? Anybody? Anybody get so mad at their phone, search the house all day, tell your wife to call it over and over and over again, only for you to have it turned off. Now you find your phone. How many of you pick up that phone that you lost and then slam it down on the ground and break it and say, this dumb phone, I hate this phone? You don't do that. You get mad because of our own self-righteousness, because we're disappointed in ourselves for losing it. None of you or I ever lose our keys and then throw them in the pond as soon as we find them because we're angry at them. We don't. It's it's us that we're angry at. And it's the same way for prodigals. God doesn't get angry with any of you when you go away and you live your prodigal lifestyle. He wants you back. Now, is he angry at the things that you're doing? Yes. Sin always angers God, but he's not mad at you. Okay? He wants you back. He wants you to be found again. And the same thing is true with all of your friends and family. You know, one of my favorite parts about God calling me to Windsor is that it's not Suffolk, Virginia. Right? One of my favorite things about living here is that I'm away from all of my past. I count that as a blessing. I don't see the people that I went to high school with ever. I will not go to Walmart in Suffolk so I don't have to see some of my friends. And at this point, you're like, wow, you're a heathen or you're a horrible person. You don't like seeing people. It's, 
It's I enjoy being set free from everything and not being reminded with it. But the people that we're surrounded with in Windsor are people that you know their past. You know their good decisions. You know their bad decisions. And when they come in here, they know that you know everything about them also. And I want us to be the type of place. I want us to be the caliber of people that when they come to Christ and they repent of their sins, that we throw a party for them celebrating that they're not that anymore. But we celebrate now that they are in the family. And so, not to to, to keep going on and on, but there's one more point that I want to make before we wrap up. And that point is, is that when the son was gone, when the prodigal son was gone and he was in the land, right? And he's away from the family and he's wasted everything and he's squandered everything, loose living, the whole nine yards. The father doesn't chase him there. You with me? This is one of the things that we will have to figure out as a body. There's a fine line sometimes between love and enablement. And I want you to see that the party was thrown for the son when the son on his own came up with this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. We call that repentance. And we call that humility. If the father, excuse me, if the son comes back from the distant land and he says, hey, pops, I'm out of money. How about keep me going? Enablement. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Humility and repentance. When people come to Christ, they can only repent if it's God enabling them to repent. Right? God has a huge thing to do with repentance and forgiveness and these things. And as you grow in maturity in Christ, as we grow in maturity in Christ, you will be able to see the difference between the two. There are people with legitimate needs that we need to help. And there are people who have needs, but they haven't come to a place of repentance. And if we help them, it will be enablement. And what I'm talking about is not an entry-level Christianity. This is a... This is a big thing that I'm talking about here. And so you pray for us as we navigate between the two. All right? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that each of us who are here that have had our sins forgiven, we thank you that when we were prodigals, you accepted us back and you brought us into the family and you clothed us with nice clothes You put a ring on our finger, and you were happy to call us your son or your daughter again. Father, if there's anyone here who feels distant from you, if there's anyone here who knows that they're not in a right relationship with you, Lord, I pray that you would ease their mind, that you would ease their heart, and you would tell them that you would gladly accept them back, regardless of anywhere they've ever gone or anything they've ever done. Lord, I pray that we would be the same caliber people to offer a hand of forgiveness to anyone who has repented and wants to come into the family. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we live in a small town to navigate the difference between love and acceptance and celebration and enabling. And Father, I pray that we would never be enablers, but I pray that we would always try to push people back to you. 
Because only in you will do we ever find repentance and salvation. And so, Father, as we come to our time of invitation, if there's anyone here who wants to reach out in faith and ask for forgiveness and be in the family, I pray that today would be the day they do it. Lord, if there's any Christian here who has gone wayward and is living a prodigal life, I pray that you would ease their heart and ease their mind, that you would let them know that you want them back in the family. That once you're in the family, you can never do anything that is outside of your grace. And so, Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand with us for our hymn of invitation. Well, it's a pleasure, as always, to see you guys this weekend. I hope you have a great week. I hope that uh, you're able to continue to get into God's Word, continue to grow. And I pray that uh, you'll give some serious thought to some of the things that we talked about this morning and uh, see how uh, we individually measure up. I'm going to remind you about your announcements in the bulletin. You've got that to take with you. It's packed full of information. Our church email packed full of information that's coming up. And I want to ask you to sign up for something to bring to our Easter egg hunt uh, that's going to be uh, on the date in your bulletin. The date just left me as I was telling you. But uh, even if you don't have kids, let me encourage you to come and show love to some of the other folks in our community. Amen? Amen. I'll take that as an I'll be there from you guys. Uh, Brother Ed, would you close us in prayer? Father, we are thankful for the joy of your presence. We thank you, Father, for this wonderful day that you've given us our health and strength that enables us to come to your house and worship you in spirit and Father, thank you for the truth that we receive today. Again, help us to take this truth with us, Lord, that as we live our life, Lord, you would show forth Christ and all of you that bless us now as we go our separate ways. 